All right, go ahead and turn in your Bibles to the book of Jonah. Jonah chapter 1 is where we're going to be at today. Uh, if you don't have a Bible and you need one, there should be one in the pew in front of you. Or also, you can use uh, the YouVersion Bible app uh, on a smartphone or tablet and uh, uh, find the event. Go to the events section and you'll have all the scriptures there for you as well. Jonah chapter 1. As we continue our series through the book of Jonah, we started it last week, and what better way to kick off the new year than starting a new book of the Bible, and so we're excited to be able to jump into uh, Jonah together today. We're going to be completing chapter 1, starting at verse 4. So verses 4 through 17 is where we're going to be at today. Now, a new thing for us as a people has been over the last couple of years, this, this coronavirus thing, right? It's just kind of changed a lot of how we do stuff or the way that people interact with one another. And there's been an endless series of decisions you've had to make, uh, both practically, but also politically. It's become uh, one of those kinds of things. And I remember about a year ago, uh, our family ended up, you know, we, we ended up getting the dreaded uh, Rona. And, uh, you know, most of us, we lost either our smell and or our taste. And nothing says cooked in a lab like losing your smell, right? And so we, uh, you know, we end up losing our smell. It's one of the weirdest things. And I remember as I, I lost my smell, I didn't ir- immediately recognize it. If, you, if this happened to you, maybe you can uh, identify with this. I, I just sort of felt like everything felt normal. Everything felt like it was just happening the way that it was until I had the conscious thought, I should smell that and I don't. And then I, you know, I'm wondering, well, maybe I'm just not close enough. And so, you know, you get closer and you're like, that, I just don't smell. It's, it's just gone. Kind of a, a weird kind of a thing because so much of our life is experienced through our senses, uh, our physical senses. We can easily forget that there's an unseen spiritual realm. Everything that we do is about our sight and our smell and hearing and touch and taste. All of that just kind of comes through those things. And because so much of life is physical, we can end up forgetting that there's a spiritual component. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3-4 through 4 says it like this. For though we walk in the flesh, that's talking about our bodies, we are not waging war according to the flesh. It's not a physical fight that we're in. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Right, so there's a spiritual thing that's taking place. That's what 2 Corinthians is, uh, chapter 10 is telling us. It's talking about that it's, even though it looks physical, it's actually spiritual. That, that's the concept. Another thing that it says earlier in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7 is this, For we walk by faith, not by sight. But, but, you know, when we think about that reality, how many of us actually walk by faith? I mean, very, very, there are those people who are blind and therefore can't walk by sight. But for the vast majority of us, we, walk, we literally walk by sight every single day. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of what we do. And because it's such a normal thing for us, walking by faith can be sort of left out or just lost and on the the outside. And because of our tendency to rely on our physical sight, we can actually become spiritually blind. Much like I rely on my my sense of smell, I didn't realize it when it was was gone. So too, with spiritual sight, when it's gone, we can not even realize that it's even gone. And when we're unwilling to uh, live by faith, or maybe unsure of how to live by faith, it results in people either abandoning their faith, 
or trying to numb themselves to it. You know, sometimes people just abandon their faith because they're just unwilling to live by faith or they're unsure of how it all works. And maybe it's just, you know, I I used to think that, I used to believe those things, but, you know, I just can't do that anymore. Jesus is in the same category as the tooth fairy or maybe Santa Claus or something like that. And so I just kind of keep him in that sort of fantasy realm, uh, being uh, unwilling to. And, and, and in abandoning faith, people typically, they look at it and they go, well, it's, it's, faith is actually unscientific. And so because I can't measure it with my senses, I'm not really going to be a person of faith because smart people don't live that way. Smart people, you know, we have this reason and logic behind what we think and what we do. And so, so you know, science becomes this reason to abandon faith. And then I just, you know, seeing faith as this thing that I don't need because that's for the weak people who need a crutch. Well, I'm willing to say, yeah, I, I definitely need a crutch. It's a big one. It's, his name's Jesus. And, uh, you know, I'm, I am definitely not strong enough to figure out my life on my own. And so some people, they'll abandon faith and say, well, it's just not, you know, I can't measure it with my senses. Other people, they, they, they don't abandon their faith. They become numb to their faith and they do so by overindulging themselves. You know, there's just a constant steady flow of stuff in my life. There's never a quiet time. There's never downtime. I've always got some sort of earbud in my ears with something saying something. There's a television going all of the time. There's always another activity to go to. I'm just busy, 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 go, go, go. And the reason is not because life is busy. It's because I don't want to have a moment alone with my own thoughts. Because if I do, I'm not sure what's going to happen. I'm not sure what's going to come up. And so I want to become numb to the idea of faith. I want to have constant activity or constant recreation or maybe indulge in pleasures of life and just pursue different things that way. Or, or even sometimes people will plunge into drugs and alcohol and just try to escape. I just don't want to feel it. I just don't want to think about it. I just don't want to go into it. And so we have this tendency to do so. Well, our big idea as we look at Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 17 is this, that rejecting God's way leads you down further than you thought you would go. It's going to take you down further than you thought you were going to go. So let's take, let's take a minute, let's read Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 17, and then we'll spend some time uh, diving into it together. Jonah chapter 1 verse 4 says this, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid, and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Verse 8, then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause this trouble, uh, whose cause is this trouble upon us? And what is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Verse 10, then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. 
When they said to him, excuse me, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea, and the sea, then the sea will become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not. For the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life, and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. Now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. All right, let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word this morning and the opportunity to open it together. And we pray, God, that you would show us who you are. Lord, that we would understand you more deeply as a result of our time together. God, we pray that as we uh, look at, at the life of Jonah and the things that you do in his life, that we would see so clearly how you work and how you move and how you operate. So God, give us eyes to see that we might understand what's happening, not just in the physical, but in the spiritual. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Today as we read Jonah chapter 1 verses 4 through 17, we're going to break it down into three parts, all right? Verse 4 is the first part, divine intervention. The second part, 5 through 9, divine selection. And the third part, 10 through 17, divine repercussion. Now Jonah here in, in this section, he essentially, what he has, the, the book itself is surrounded by this idea that Jonah has a lapse of faith, that he knows God's way, but he still chooses to abandon God's way. He just doesn't want anything to do with the way that God wants him to go. And this can happen within the heart and mind of those people who have placed their faith in God already within the heart and mind of believers, um, primarily for two reasons. And Jonah is facing both of these reasons. There's actually both of these that are taking place within Jonah. The first one is pride. And we looked at that last week, that, that essentially in the very beginning of this, God says to Jonah, I want you to go to this city. The city's name is Nineveh, and I want you to preach to these people. And he says, I don't want to. And, and so he goes the exact opposite direction. And what we found is that as we look at chapter four, the re, excuse me, that chapter four, the reason why he wants to do so is because he hates them. It's because he thinks he knows better. God, I don't want to do what you want. I want you to get on board with what I want, is, is Jonah's attitude. Pride, that, that he thinks he's smarter than God. He believes that those people don't deserve God's grace. And so pride keeps him uh, from uh, going the way that the Lord wants. The second reason, and what we're going to see today, is actually cowardice. That he's afraid to trust God. That Jonah simply won't take responsibility. And because he won't take responsibility, he's willing to put other people in harm's way because of his own sin. So let's look at this first piece together, divine intervention in verse 4 of Jonah chapter 1. Look back at verse 4, it says this, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship was about to be broken up. Notice it says there in verse 4, but the Lord. Now, now, if you weren't with us last week, then this should sort of let you know something else has happened. Something else has taken place previous to this. You see, Jonah's intention was to run away from God. That's what it says in verse 3 twice, that he's trying to get away from the presence of the Lord. And so he's trying to get away from God 
And so instead of going a couple hundred miles northeast to Nineveh, uh, he decides to go southwest to the city of Joppa, and uh, there he decides that he's just going to find a boat. So, you know, Jonah, he, he makes a little journey from the Sea of Galilee, uh, that region, down to this uh, port city of Joppa, and he goes and he finds a ship, and uh, as he's there at the docks, he finds this ship that's going to go to Tarshish, which is literally the furthest spot known to them in this time in history. He's, he's going to go as far away as humanly possible. Basically, he's going to Spain. That's what he's going to do. So he's going to go across the entire Mediterranean Sea in order to get away from the Lord, thousands of miles away from what God wants. And so what does he do? He, uh, he goes, he finds these guys. He's like, hey, what luck? There's a ship. It's going really far away. And he asks them, hey, can I get on your boat? And they say, yeah, they, they uh, you know, settle a price. He pays the fare. He goes on the boat. They leave the, the dock. They get out into the bay. They start to set sail. They're in open water. And then Jonah decides, you know what? I think I'm going to take a nap. So he goes down into the boat and he just takes a nap. In Jonah's mind, he's winning, right? It's, it's all working. It's all coming together. Everything is happening. And somehow Jonah believes that God doesn't see him. Verse 4, but the Lord. Jonah thinks he's got everything under control. He thinks he's got his life set in the direction he wants, and he's not going to do what God wants but the Lord. You see, God is so gracious that there is nothing that you can think, nothing that you can say, nothing that you can do that is outside of his reach. There's nowhere you can go that's too far for him to be able to reach you. Now, for some of you, maybe you think that's a scary thing. You're like, I've been trying to hide from God and you know, he's, he, I can't ever get away. Well, for me, it's actually a very comforting thing because I know I belong to him. And so there's nothing I can do to get myself so far away he can't reach me. That God is so good and so gracious. Psalm 139 verses 8 through 10 says it like this. If I go up to heaven, you're there. If I go down to the grave, you're there. If I ride on the wings of the morning, if I dwell in the furthest oceans, even there your hand will guide me and your strength will support me. You see, Jonah is in this place of running from the Lord and yet he's not getting away from, from who God is. Jonah running from God essentially is trying to violate two big theological truths about who God is. The first one is that God is omnipresent. It just means that God's everywhere. Right? That, that, that there's nowhere, we just read that in Psalm 139. There's nowhere you can go where God is not. And Jonah thinks that he's been able to flee from the presence of God. Well, that's just, it's just not possible. Theologically, he's not going to go anywhere where he's going to be away from the Lord. He's always going to be where God is. And the other thing that Jonah had forgotten and is trying to violate is that God is, it's related to om, om, omnipresent. It's that God is omniscient, meaning he knows everything. God knows everything. God knows your thoughts, Jonah. God knows where you are, Jonah. God knows where you're trying to go to. He knows, he, even though you think that you're in this obscure spot in the middle of the Mediterranean, down in this boat, and no one can see you, the Lord can see you. See, here's what happens. Sin damages your decision-making. It damages your decision-making. As soon as Jonah decided he was going to flee from the presence of God, he started living in sin. And as soon as he started making that decision, it's, it damaged the way that he was going to make his decisions. And, and so what happens is that what's completely insane and foolish, like Jonah thinking he's hiding from God on a boat, becomes plausible for you. 
That's how temptation works, right? Satan doesn't show up in red tights with a pitchfork and say, hey, I'm here to ruin your life. You're like, oh, I should stay away from you. You look evil, right? That's just not the way it works. He, he brings deception along. It looks good. It looks right. It looks like this is the thing you should do. It looks like there's benefit to it. That's, that's just how it happens. You see, temptation is only a perversion of what God alone gives. That's why it's a temptation. Right? If, if, it was, if it was evil and going to ruin your life, then you would say, I don't want that. But if it looks like something that you do want... If it looks like something that is going to satisfy, if it looks like it is, then that's where the temptation comes from. But the problem is that we can only find satisfaction in the Lord. God is the only one where the, where, where the actual substance is found. Temptation offers you a, a hollow perversion of what is true in Christ. And so don't trust that temptation. It, it's never as good as it looks. It looks like it's going to satisfy. It looks like it's going to take you the right way, but it's never as good as it looks. It never actually delivers. You're never going to actually get away with it. You're, you, it's never going to come through the way that it is. Why? Because, because God knows. And because God loves you enough to pursue you. He's not going to let you just go that way. He's going to pursue you and he's going to come after you. And so what does God do? It says, verse 4, but God, but the Lord, sent out a great wind on the sea. Now the idea of, of sent out, see how it says sent there? The idea of sent is that God hurled this. The imagery is that God throws a storm at Jonah. That, that this is very, uh, you know, he's flinging this massive storm at, storm at Jonah. And it's so strong, we see there in verse 4, that it's literally starting to break the ship apart. That it's destroying the ship. Now, this isn't. This is very clear. It's not arbitrary. It's not that there just happened to be a really bad, um, you know, uh, weather on the ocean that day. Uh, it's not an arbitrary thing. This is absolutely the hand of the Lord. Now, the sailors, uh, they weren't wrong to sail, right? They they had this plan to go to Tarshish. They're just sailors doing what they do, uh, and apparently they had some cargo that they were transporting, and so they're they're not wrong to do that. Jonah wasn't wrong in terms of paying to travel. That, you know, it was a, that's just a common thing. You know, if you wanted to do that, that's not a big deal. Uh, there's nothing necessarily inherently wrong with Tarshish. The problem in all this is that Jonah has no business being there. That's the problem. There's nothing necessarily inherently sinful in any of this except that Jonah is exactly where he shouldn't be. That, that's the problem. Charles Spurgeon says it like this. If you do a wrong thing in the rightest way possible in which it can be done, it does not make it right. If you go uh, contrary to the Lord's will, even though you do it in the most decent and perhaps the most devout manner, it is nevertheless sinful and will bring you under condemnation. And so Jonah's soul is so gripped by foolishness that he pursues what seems best to him. And what is he doing? He's actually putting others' lives at risk in the process. He, he just thinks, I'm just going to take a trip. But what he's doing is he's actually uh, causing others to be at risk in the process. Proverbs 14, 12 says this, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. That's where Jonah's at. He's just doing what seems best to him. I don't want to do what God wants, so I'm going to do what I want. And I'm going to go my way. And in the process, he ends up putting a lot of people's lives at risk. Now, all of this, all of this storm and everything is God's gracious intervention in Jonah's life. And I'm certain, as you think, think about this for a minute, 
You're in the middle of the storm where Jonah's at, and it's literally destroying the boat that you're on. I'm sure none of it felt gracious. It didn't feel like really awesome and so good. It didn't feel gracious in the moment. I'm sure it felt scary. It felt rough. It felt like, God, you're so mean. Why would you break this guy's ship? What a jerk. Why would you be so mean like that? It it felt like it was just this uh, terrible thing that that was taking place that was too much. Well, storms come into our lives and God either allows them or he brings them. And I think it's for at least three reasons. There are at least three things that storms can bring into our lives. Uh, Number one, storms can bring destruction into our lives. You're like, well, that doesn't sound too exciting. Um, In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus describes how there are two different lives that people can build. He says you can build one life and it's built on a rock and it's built there and it stands. And when Jesus said that, he was saying that the life built on the rock is built on him. He's the rock. And that when you build your life like a house on a rock, that it stands firm on the rock. But he said that there's another kind of a life that's not built on him. It's built on anything else. And anything else is sand. And when we build like a house, our lives, not on Jesus, it's built on sand. And interestingly, in Matthew 7, when Jesus describes this, he says that each of these houses, both houses, go through the exact same thing. The storm comes. It beats on the house. But the one that was on the rock stands. The one that's on the sand, it falls. And it has a great fall, is what Jesus says. You see, sometimes God brings or he allows storms to come into your life to destroy the stuff that shouldn't be there, to to show you the weakness and foolishness of your own way, to show you that perhaps the way that you were trying to go, the thing you were trying to build, it it actually can't stand. And it shows you that you need the Lord. You need need Jesus. The the second idea uh, of what storms can bring, number one, destruction, but number two, deliverance. Deliverance. When I think about this, I think about a different kind of a storm. I think about a firestorm in Daniel chapter 3. In Daniel chapter 3, there are these three guys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Their Hebrew names are um, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And uh, they're, they're Daniel's friends. And uh, they're told that they have to worship the uh, golden image that's established, that's set up. And they decide, no, we only worship God. We're not going to worship your idol. And so Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is mad and says, I'm going to kill you. And they go, well, I mean, if you've got to do what you got to do. And so he's so mad that he tells them to heat up the furnaces seven times more than they were usually heated up. And the guards who are putting in these three guys, they actually die in the process of pushing them in. And and then as they're they're looking in, uh, the, the king says, hey, didn't we put three guys in the fire? And, uh, you know, they, they, they're looking in there and he goes, but I see four figures. There's four people and, and they're walking around. They're not, they're not bound. They're, they're just in the fire sort of walking around. And, and, and what we see, what we can deduce from that is that Jesus is actually in the fire with them. And, and that as they're in the fire, they, they, the king calls them back out of the fire and they just come walking back out of the fire that previously just killed these two guards. And the only thing that's burned is the ropes that bound them. The hairs on their body aren't burned. Their clothes don't even smell like fire. They come out completely preserved. The storm, the firestorm, only removed what bound them. Sometimes God brings storms into your life for deliverance. He's looking to, to take something away. He's looking to deliver something from your life in that. And thirdly, what we see here in Jonah chapter 1 is that sometimes God brings storms into your life to redirect you. You're going the wrong way. 
You're You're just going the wrong way. And so what does God do? He brings the storm not to destroy you, not to deliver you, but to direct you. He wants to show what's, what's going uh, in the wrong way and redirect it to the right way. Here, here's the big thing. God is more committed to who we are becoming than where we are going. God's not really worried about where Jonah's going. That, that really has nothing to do with the story other than he's just going where God doesn't want him to go. God had told him where to go. God had given him direction and he's abandoning the way of God. And that has to do with Jonah's character. It has to do with who Jonah is. You see, we get this backwards. A lot of the times we think that God is so interested in where we're going and the stuff that we're doing, but really, he's interested in who we are. He's he's using the process to grow us in these things. So not only do we see, verse 4, that there's divine intervention, but also, verses 5 through 9, divine selection. Look at verse 5. It says this, Then the mariners were afraid. And every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship and lain down and was fast asleep. Now at first, these experienced mariners, they they see the rough seas and they're like, just another day as a, a dude on a ship. You know, it's just kind of the way it goes. There's just, when you set sail... You don't really know how it's going to go. And so rough seas are a thing that happens. It's just a normal part of sailor life. And so they start dealing with it naturally. They have no idea that they're not in a natural storm. They're in a supernatural storm. That this is something that God has thrown at them. It's, the, the truth of the matter, the reality is that the supernatural can look really natural. That a lot of times when God is moving in supernatural ways, it looks really natural. That it just looks sort of normal. And what these guys find out is that as they go through this and what they'll see is that no amount of do more, no amount of try harder is going to get them anywhere. They're not going to be able to overcome this with their own ingenuity or their own expertise or their own experience in sailing. They didn't realize it, but this is actually the hand of God that's against them, not just a random storm. And so it gets worse. You know, the storm is there, it's starting to break up the ship, and and they they think, all right, let's just figure out how to, maybe we can tack around this thing, or we can, you know, figure out how to hold the ship together, and it'll all go, all get better. So it gets worse, and they get nowhere, so what do they do? They're afraid, and every man cried out to his God. So they turn to idol worship. They wonder, you know, maybe, maybe my, maybe my idol will save me. Maybe, you know, they had certain idols of the, of the sea or whatever, and they could cry out to their idols and figure out if, if their, their false God is going to somehow come through with it for them. And when that doesn't work, then what do they do? Look there at verse five. Then they throw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. Now this is, this should show you that they are in a desperate situation. They're willing to throw away their livelihood. They're they're willing to say the whole reason for this voyage is to take this stuff from here to there. That this is our money and we're just going to throw it all away. We're going to throw it all in the ocean because we're hoping that we can save our lives. You see, when God brings the storm, your efforts to rescue yourself will only make a difficult situation worse. Because the point of the storm is to bring you to the end of yourself. That's the point of the storm. The point of the storm isn't to see how strong you are and how tough you are and if you can make it through and God's just, he just likes to mess with you. You know, I don't, maybe you think that, you know, God just likes to mess with me and so I don't know why, but he just picks on me every once in a while and just does mean things. No, that's not true at all. 
The point of the storm is to get you to the end of yourself where you can see him. And so as they try to just make it better on their own, not realizing it's a spiritual storm, they actually make it worse. Going through a crisis of faith isn't because God hates you, it's because God loves you. He wants to solidify your faith. He's actually using the difficulty for you, not against you. It doesn't feel like it in the process. It feels like somehow, you know, God, I'm just, the, I'm just on the anvil and you just like to blast me. You just like to hit me over and over again. And I don't know why it's so fun for you, but man, I'm tired of getting hit. But God is, he's actually looking to use this for you. He's looking to, to, to do something for you in the process. Now, Jonah, he's in a very huge downward spiral, a big downward progression. We saw in verse 3 that he went down to Joppa. And also in verse 3, he went down into the lowest parts of the ship. That, and uh, um, uh, Excuse me, down into the ship. And then in verse 5, down into the lowest parts of the ship. And now here in verse 5, he lays down. It's just down and down and down. This is the imagery of things are getting worse and worse and worse. He's hardening himself in his way more and more and more. And it's just going the wrong way. When you choose your way over God's way, it always leads down. It always goes down. And sadly for Jonah, he still has lower to get before he's going to come to himself, to come to his senses and realize his rebellion is the reason for this downward spiral. That it's not just a random thing that's taking place, but it's actually his rebellion. And the question I wonder is how far down do you have to go before you'll come to yourself and realize I just need to submit to the Lord. I just need to submit to Jesus. I need to submit to his way and what what he is doing. David Guzik says it like this. What a curious and tragic scene. All the sailors were religious men, devout in their prayers to their gods, yet their gods were really nothing and could do nothing. Yet there was one man on board who had a relationship with the true God, his word, and worshiped him, yet he was asleep. It's kind of a crazy thing. You see, in order to do this, in order to be in this spot, in order to be in this position, Jonah had to abandon everything that God gave him in Israel. He had to abandon his family. He had to abandon his friends. He had to abandon his possessions. He had to abandon his position. He had to abandon his calling. He had to literally let go of everything, the life that God had given him, the things that he had built in Israel, the, the, the land that God had given him as his inheritance that so much of the Old Testament points to, he lets go of all of it. He just doesn't, he doesn't want that anymore. He just wants to get away. When you run instead of repent, it wounds your heart so deeply that what is crazy seems normal. It's so normal for Jonah that he's just He's just asleep. He's just kind of going his way, doing his thing, and uh, doesn't, he doesn't really see that he, he has taken uh, everything that God's given him and literally thrown it away. And so the sailors, they realize someone's missing on their freakout session. So verse 6, they go find him. Verse 6, so when the captain came to him and, and said to him, what do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. So they they realize, hey man, what's going on? That we're all losing our minds trying to keep this ship floating and uh, there's somebody missing. And so the captain finally goes down into the lower parts of the the boat there and finds Jonah asleep and uh, tries to rouse him awake. And is like, what are you doing? How could you be sleeping in the middle of all this storm? It kind of reminds me of Matthew chapter 8. 
Jesus was doing the same thing. That uh, Jesus, with his uh, disciples, he says, hey, let's go across the Sea of Galilee. And there's this crazy wind that comes out of nowhere. And, and, and it's so bad that the experienced fishermen who are on the boat with Jesus, they're losing their minds. They think they're all going to die. But Jesus is asleep. And so they go and they wake Jesus up. And they're like, Jesus, don't you care about us? We're all going to die. You, you just, you're just over here sleeping. And what does Jesus do? Well, he wakes up. He rebukes the storm. And it immediately stops. It's interesting that, that here that Jonah is out of control and he's sleeping to escape. He's just trying to just get away. But Jesus, the one who is greater than Jonah, is in complete control even though he's asleep. That, that Jesus has complete control even while he slept. So what do they do? Verse 7, they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? And what is your occupation? And where do you come from? And what's your country? And of what people are you? So he said to them, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. So they cast lots. It's a, the idea of casting lots is it's like drawing straws. You know, they, they're trying to figure out who, you know, who's the, the one. And so uh, casting lots was something that they would do. They, this is something that you would do to try to sort of figure stuff out or understand God's will. It's something that they did in Acts chapter 2 when uh, they, the disciples decided they needed to replace Judas. And so they cast lots in order to figure out who the, the, the new disciple is going to be. Um, and interestingly, the lot fell to a guy you never hear from again. Uh, and so, you know, I don't think he's a bad guy, but obviously it wasn't God's choice. I would say in Acts, the guy that was to replace Judas was Paul. And so it took a couple chapters and a few years to get to that guy. But the thing was that that's how they used to determine and discern God's will. How do we know what God wants? How do we know what's happening here? And so they would use this method of drawing straws. And so in Acts chapter 2, obviously the Holy Spirit was coming. And so there's no need to do that any longer. And so they do this. They try to figure out, well, what is God's will? What do we need to do? What's the reason for the storm? And they find out it's Jonah. And so at this point, Jonah finally comes clean. They, they, they decide, okay, the lot fell to you. Okay, bro, who are you? Where are you from? What did you do? What's going on with you? Obviously, these are very superstitious men. They think that you must have done something to displease the gods. And so what did you do? They're all coming down to come against us. And so they grill him and ask him a bunch of questions to find out who he's in. And they find out uh, that uh, in um, verse 9, he says, I'm a Hebrew. Uh, and I fear the Lord. Now, uh, they find out that uh, essentially the God of the land and the sea is the one that they are against, the one that created everything, who made heaven and the sea and the dry land. Now, it's interesting that they would have to ask him this um, because the Hebrew people, one of the ways that they were known was by the way that they dressed. They had a very distinct way that they were supposed to dress according to Old Testament uh, um, uh, law. And so uh, Jonah, being a prophet of the Lord, would have known that and would have dressed that way. And so it's probably, he probably changed his clothes. He, he's, he's probably, you know, just trying to look like everybody else and just kind of go along because they have no idea where he's from. They have no idea what's going on with him. And, and, and so, you know, he, uh, he changed before he shows up. And, and notice what he says. He says, I fear the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. 
Is there anything in Jonah's life that would make you think he fears the Lord? No, no, no. That's, it's kind of, it's a weird, it's like an oxymoron in this moment. It's like, what, what are you, it's like jumbo shrimp. What are you talking about? There's, there's no such thing. Um, the, the, you fear the Lord? This, this really, it's, it's kind of a crazy thing. His actions are actually proving the exact opposite, that, that he doesn't fear the Lord, that he's actually going the completely different direction. Well, um, not only do we see divine intervention in, the, in verse 4 and then divine selection, but divine repercussion in verses 10 through, through 17, that God is still in control, that God is still moving in all of this. Verse 10, then... The men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he told them. All right, so here we have the, the men are exceedingly afraid because this is the moment that they realize the storm is not a mere coincidence. That all of this is coming against them, not just because it happened to be a storm and they just happened to be in this place and it's just kind of one of those natural things that takes place for sailors. They know that Jonah is the cause and that they are in a fight with God. And so they're like, what in the world is happening? I mean, these, these men would in, inevitably have heard stories about God, and now they're living in a story about God. They, they'd heard about what God had done in the past. They'd heard about this God who could part the Red Sea. They heard about this God who could let the nation of Israel come into the land and take it over and run out all of the, uh, the different uh, uh, nations before them. And so, and so here they are. Having heard stories about this God, now they know that this God is, is who he says he is, and they're living in this story. Interestingly, in verse 9, Jonah says he fears the Lord, but then in verse 10, he also says, because it says he told them, he's fleeing from the Lord. But these things, they don't go together. That you cannot fear the Lord and flee from the Lord at the same time. That's just not the way that it goes. Proverbs chapter 19, verse 23 says this, Fear of the Lord leads to life, bringing security and protection from harm. Jonah's living the exact opposite of what this verse talks about. That, that if he was living in the fear of the Lord, he wouldn't be there. If he actually had feared the Lord, he wouldn't be in that position. Now, maybe when you hear the fear of the Lord, you're wondering, you know, what, what is the, what's the fear of the Lord? A lot of people think of the fear of the Lord and they think of being afraid of God. And I think that maybe that's partially one sense in which you could take it, that God is big and strong and powerful. And so there's a healthy fear that I have of the Lord. But it's not, it's not necessarily that type of fear that I'm afraid of God, the way that, the way that I'm afraid of sharks. Um, because uh, I, don't, I know that the, the chances of being eaten by a shark are uh, less than being struck by lightning twice, but I'm pretty sure sharks like gingers. Um, <laughs> It's like this delicacy. They haven't had one yet. And so they're like, oh, let's try that. Uh, and so, you know, really I stay away from the ocean because I'm pretty sure they want to bite me. And so I'm afraid of sharks. I'm so, it's so dumb. I'm so afraid of sharks. I'll be afraid of sharks in a, in a lake. It's the dumbest thing ever. And I know there's no shark, but I'm still afraid. Okay. It's just, you can pray for me in my weirdness. But um, the, the fear of God is not like that. It's not an irrational fear. It's not, it's not even a fear of, of that thing that could hurt you or harm you. The fear of God is something that always will lead you to him, not away from him. That's the fear of the Lord. It's like this. It's like my kids. With my kids, I might be the source of their discipline, and so they're sort of afraid of that. 
but I'm also the source of their love and their protection. And so because they fear me, they don't hide from me, they come to me. That's the idea of the fear of the Lord. You see, the fear of the Lord is to honor and to respect and to love, not to be afraid of necessarily. So when Jonah says, I fear the Lord and I'm running away from him, it's crazy. Like, what are you talking about? You can't do this. These things don't go together. You can't say you fear the Lord and you're fleeing from him at the same time. Warren Wearsby, in his uh, uh, commentary, says this. Um, God was no longer speaking to Jonah through his word. He was speaking to him through his works. The sea, the wind, the rain, the thunder, and even the great fish. Everything in nature obeyed God except his servant. God even spoke to Jonah through the heathen sailors, verses 6, 8, and 10, who didn't know Jehovah. Yet, uh, excuse me, it's a sad thing when a servant of God is rebuked by pagans. And so here Jonah is saying that he has been this one who uh, is fearing the Lord, and yet his actions are proving the exact opposite. Verse 11, then they said to him, what shall we do to you that the sea may be calm for us? For the sea is, was growing more tempestuous. And he, said to him to, and he said to them, pick me up and throw me into the sea. Then the sea will be calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Now, this is pretty weird, right? Just think about this for a minute. Let's say you're on a boat. There's a big you know, storm. And one dude says, hey, it's my fault. Just throw me in the ocean. <laughs> Some of you are like, all right, done. And he's in, you know, um, it's just kind of a weird situation to be in. Like, what do you do with this? Jonah's faithless rebellion, it's not just affecting him. It's affecting these other sailors. And really, they have nothing to do with the situation. They're just kind of doing their thing on their, on their way to, to be a part of, of their trade. And their sailors, the sailors are in Jonah's storm. See, the truth is that whoever's near you is going to be in your storm with you. They may, it may not be their fault. At all. It may have nothing to do with them at all. But because you are the one in rebellion to the Lord and the storm is in your life, it's going to be in theirs as well. And so these sailors are in this position. Now, because, uh, because God loves Jonah, what he's doing in this moment is he's pushing Jonah to the point of decision. He's saying, you're going the wrong way, Jonah. You've chosen the opposite of what I want for you. And I want you to choose to come back my way, to come back to me. He's, he's calling Jonah out of a duplicitous life. You can't live both ways anymore. You can't be my prophet and live uh, like, like you don't know me. You've got to come to a point of decision. And God's doing the same thing with you and me. He's pushing us to the point of decision. No more one foot in, one foot out. No more living a duplicitous life. It's time to make the decision to be all in for the Lord. Verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to the land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life and do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. Verse 15, So they picked up Jonah 
and threw him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. See, the mariners are more honorable and faithful than Jonah. He says, hey, here's how it's going to work. I know that the whole storm's my fault, so just throw me in, and uh, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll make all the sea be calm for you. And they say, we're not doing that, bro. And they try to row back to the land. They say, let's, let's just, we'll pull in the, the sails, we'll try to row back to the land, and they can't. They're fighting hard against the sea, and they just can't get anywhere. And so they're more honorable than Jonah. He's putting their lives at risk, and they refuse to do the same to him because they know if I throw him in this water, there's, nobody can survive this. He's going to die if we put him out in this open ocean. I mean, he would die under the best circumstances, but here in this ridiculously amazing storm, he has no chance. And so they refuse to do what he's doing to them. And Jonah, it's interesting, he, doesn't, he could have just jumped in himself, right? At any point, you're free, Jonah, just jump in. He's like, I'm not doing that, man. There's no way I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do that. If, I, if I'm going down, they're coming with me, you know? Uh, I got a better shot on this boat or whatever. And so, you know, he could have at any point jumped in, but because of his, his desire for self-preservation, which I would say was cowardice, he wanted to preserve himself. And because of his pride, he didn't want to go, go God's way. He refuses to take responsibility for his sin. I'm not going to take responsibility for my sin. I'm not going to be the one that jumps overboard and, and takes the, the responsibility. Instead, I'm going to put it on you guys. You have to do it for me. You have to throw me in. And so the sailors are willing to submit to God and act in faith toward him, even when Jonah will not. And so what do they do? They pray, God, we're going to, we're going to chuck this dude in. We're not trying to kill him, okay? Like the, it's the, it's, we're just trying to do what you want, okay? This seems to us, because you spoke through your prophet, like you want him in the water, and so we're going to do it. And so they, they're, they're responding to the Lord. They're acting in faith. They're trying to discern God's will and do it. I mean, they're, they're acting more like believers than Jonah is in this moment, aren't they? Notice what happens. Verse 16, or verse 15, it says, uh, they, they pick up Jonah and they throw him in the sea and the sea ceased from its raging. It's like as soon as Jonah touches the water, the storm turned off. It's, all, it's calm, glassy sea and the sun's out and the birds are chirping again, you know, and, and Jonah's just sitting in there in the water. Verse 16, then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows now the Lord had prepared a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. You see, as soon as Jonah touches the water, it's instantly calm, and they realize the stories they heard about God were true. That this is the true and living God. And immediately they come to faith. Immediately they, they cry out to God. They're, they're, they, they devote themselves to him. They offer sacrifices to the Lord. They actually feared God the Lord, the way that Jonah claimed he had feared the Lord. And even in Jonah's rebellion, God is faithful. God still used Jonah in his rebellion to reach out to these men and bring them to salvation, to reveal himself to these men. And God again shows his desire to bring the Gentiles, those who are not Jews, right? That's what a Gentile is. Those are out, who are outside the Jewish faith. God wants to reach out to them and bring them into the faith. God first told Jonah, go to Nineveh. I want them to hear about me. That his desire was for the Gentiles. And now here these, these Gentile uh, fishermen the, or these mariners uh, are the ones who he reaches out for. 
And just then, as, as he goes into the water, uh, a giant fish swallows Jonah. Now, how did it work? I mean, was it that as soon as Jonah touches the water, then the fish comes up and eats him, you know? Is that how it worked? Or, you know, did he, did he sit there for a little while and there's that huge, giant, you know, uh, um, shadow that moves under him and you're like, oh, I am. Um, <laughs> well, how did, I don't know how it worked. I don't know exactly when it happened. And maybe it's like the, the image, you know, that he's sinking down and there's little bubbles and then he sees the fish and it comes to get it. I, how, I don't know how it happened. I don't know exactly what took place, but, but we, well, here's what we know. He was swallowed by the fish and he was in the fish for three days and for three nights. And we're going to look at that a little bit more closely next week as we continue on. But here's the thing. Jonah's rebellion cost him so much. It cost him so much. And the question I have is, was it worth it? I mean, he, he, he sells everything. He gets rid of everything in his homeland. He tries to get on this ship to go across the Mediterranean. And he ends up in the ocean, in the water, swallowed by a fish. And what we realize is that Jonah has to go down even further. He's going to go down into the depths of the, of the ocean. So much so that it feels like it's crushing him. That Jonah has to go down so far. How far down do you have to go before you realize you got to go God's way? That the Lord is calling you to his way. That you see, Jesus has done everything to allow us to participate in his way. See, Jesus, he came into human history. Jesus put on human flesh. He, he goes to the cross and bleeds and dies, not just to do some sort of, of nice thing, but because he knows that this is the purchase price for your soul, that this is what cleans you from your sin. This is what causes you to be able to be a part of the family of God. And that this not only just makes things right between you and God, but it allows you to go God's way. And so God wants to lead you his way, but, but sometimes we're, we're just in this rebellious thing. I want my thing. I want my way. I want to do, I want to do life my way. And so we try to do this. And, and yet, what comes into our lives? Storms. Storms. Because we need to be redirected. See, Jesus has done everything for you, and he's worthy of your entire life and your service. But your sin isn't worth it. It's not worthy of your life. It's not worthy of your service. It's time to abandon your way and to go his way. Maybe that's why the Lord brought you here today. Maybe that's what this whole thing is about, that you're here because it's time to stop living a double life. It's time to stop living like you can do both and. And it's time to go all in for the Lord, to trust him wholeheartedly and to give him your whole life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the opportunity to open it, to look at it, to study it. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to abandon our way and go your way. Lord, show us how uh, we are living for ourselves and we have things out of order and stuff is not going the direction that you want. And God, uh, give us the courage and faith to follow you. So Lord, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you are so good. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.